This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, big updates are coming to the AOPA apps. And a flight relay across the United States is now known as Operation Successful. And it's time to take that winter vacation to the Caribbean and the Bahamas. But not before you read the new null reports, which is or are out. And finally, a surprise flying car. Are you ready to do some hangar talk, Ian? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Yeah, 1056, turn right, heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, turn right, turn right, turn right. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, it's a guy you and I both know, and you caught up with him, Robert DeLaurentis. He has completed... Really, an incredible feat. He's flown around the world, actually both ways, most recently via the poles. He did a polar circumnavigation. That means he crossed first the South Pole and then the North Pole. And Robert actually, besides learning a lot about himself and learning a a lot about people of the world, he actually has some really cool experiments on board, Ian, that could help all of us. And he'll tell us all about it. Okay, so stick around for that. Let's start with the AOPA apps. Now, there is the AOPA app, the we call in, in AOPA kind of the membership app, where you can find news and join and renew and that sort of thing. And then there's AOPA Go, which is all your flying needs, airports and, and that sort of thing. But uh, we're trying to simplify things a little bit for users. And so AOPA Go will be folded into that main AOPA app. And so, Ian, for this, it means a little bit less uh, time spent downloading things for both apps. It helps streamline my pre-flight operations. And, you know, you can get the same information that was on the AOPA Go app on the regular AOPA app that includes, you know, the airport and destination directory, which I use all the time. It's excellent. Yeah, so really it's going to make things easier for folks, I think. Instead of trying to remember, okay, which app does what, you can just go to the one. It does include Hangar Talk and all the other podcasts. It includes, like we said, the news. It's now going to include the airport information. And then critically, I think, something that's really cool that that you and I have both kind of played around with and really like that's coming up, and that is weather. 
Right on, Ian. There's a beta version of the new AOPA weather app that's out right now. I'm going to read that link to people and the folks who are Hangar Talk listeners, they could check it out for about a week or so until it's live. Just go to www.aopa.org slash weather. It's that easy. And check out that new beta version. Ian, you and I were talking a little bit about that before we got on air, and there's some really cool things about it that I like. Yeah. Well, it's just a little more, it looks more modern, a lot more products. But one thing that you and I both like is is the wind. I mean, that's very cool. I really like this setting. It's called Windstream, and it gives me more of a global look at what the weather patterns are. I can really visualize a low and a high because there's. it's hard to describe what it is, but it looks like these like flying tadpoles that are circula- <laughs> and s- circulating around. Yeah. And, um, but I could visualize as, a, as you know, an instrument student, I could visualize what is going on with the weather and uh, and what might be happening adjacent to where I'm going to fly and where these two systems might clash. Yeah, that's a good point. I thought that was really cool, and I really like the, the radar settings. And uh, both of these settings have sliders where you can make them more or less dense, you know, over the background. I thought that was really interesting, and it's relatively intuitive. I, I played around with it a little bit. I set a couple of favorite airports in. Of course, Frederick is one because that's where we're based. And I can go to those so easily now. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. So now, Go will be around until the end of the year, but it's time to transition now. So make sure that you're ready for that transition because at the end of the year, Go will not be supported anymore and you will have to have that AOPA app. So make sure you download that and learn it before you need it. David, moving on, I want to talk about, you know, I think a lot of pilots, they, they feel like they want to help in this time. You know, obviously aviation is, is a release for a lot of people and they're getting out there and flying and enjoying it. We know that. But I think pilots, they always have this urge to want to give back with their airplanes. And, and you caught up with a group that has done just that. I did, Ian. And this Across the Country Rally, which I've written about a little bit, is called America's Operation Thank You. It started in San Diego about the last week in September. And the goal was to thank frontline coronavirus workers, specifically healthcare personnel and law enforcement personnel, that are keeping us safe and healthy. And the idea was for general aviation pilots to fly a, a leg, a small leg, in a GA airplane and go from, from GA airport to GA airport. And there would be a small ceremony upon landing where some local healthcare people would be out there socially distancing, mm-hmm. but just to say thank you. Yeah. So it actually came to pass. And it did start in San Diego at September 24th, and it ended in Washington, D.C. on October 30th. I covered the, uh, the last flight uh, in person, and it was a huge success. The organizer of the event has called it Operation Successful now. <laughs> I was going to say it was probably was Operation Tear My Hair Out for a little while because— Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of logistics there you know weather would affect some of the flights and mechanical malfunctions on some of the volunteer pilots affected some of the flights but this was a a really a grassroots effort ian and my hat is off to the operation thank you uh or the relay in the sky organizers and specifically skip helmley who was along on all of these flights he's a college student and he helped coordinate a lot of the logistics wow. and the spirit of liberty foundation and the foundation's director uh, richard rosek and he was really helpful and he said look it's a priority and we're going to do this again 
And there are already plans in place to do something like this again for next year, culminating on Veterans Day. That's very cool. Yeah. And your pictures are great. I mean, and so they they ended up, like you said, at National. And yeah, there's like, there's cops out there and healthcare workers and people, they just seem like happy, a great environment. And Signature, you said it was a great support there at National, a lot of places that, you know, a lot of GA pilots don't fly. But we were able to see, you know, a Cirrus there at National and getting that GA exposure. So really cool event. And I think it's just great that they, you know, they were kind of sitting there and they thought, God, you know, we're pilots, we can do something you know, let's bring awareness and, and say thanks. So I, just uh, like you said, grassroots and really, really cool f- series of flights. It is, Ian. I was going to mention one more thing. Uh, I want to tip my hat to Barry Goldberg, who flew that last leg from BWI into Reagan National. And Barry said that, you know, honoring the healthcare people was a personal experience for him because he had run into a little bit of a health scare himself. Y- y'all could read the story and find a little bit more, but he just wanted to honor them. And he was really nervous about flying into DCA airport as anyone would be because they don't even have avgas he told me so they don't they're not used to little airplanes and while we were there there were there were two airplanes that were getting ready to take off with some presidential you know entourage personnel in in the run-up to the election and but he said the people were great and uh, here's a great quote this really is just another piece of pavement yeah right but not really (laughs) it's a very expensive piece (laughs) of pavement (laughs) very secure one yeah. yeah So he was great, and I want to say that the healthcare personnel and the local law enforcement people that were there were really happy. They were applauding, clapping. They just really appreciated the general aviation pilots who put this together. That's great. Very cool. So a place that's a little bit nicer than uh, DCA this time of year is Bahamas and Caribbean. Obviously, all of us, even in good times, sit there and dream about making those trips to warm waters and islands. And especially now. And, you know, AOPA is the publisher of the Bahamas and Caribbean Guides. And these are kind of one-stop shop books, resources, and and digital resources that give you everything from, you know, airport information to customs. And now the new versions are out, and that includes even more relevant current information. Absolutely, Ian. And I must say that, first of all, I am envious of you because you have flown in the Bahamas and the Caribbean, but I have not yet. I am uh, actually, I did one time when we had a relief flight for one of the hurricanes. But folks who are flying those kind of um, hurricane relief flights or going on vacation will be happy to know right now with this update of the island pilot guides that the air travel information is going to also include coronavirus-related travel procedures and specifically a list of COVID-19 resources, such as places for a quick turnaround for that PCR test, things like that. Yeah, it's critical. Yeah, and that Island Guides, Ian, we've been publishing that for almost 40 years. It's like the Bible to the Caribbean for pilots. Yeah. With a lot of great information. There are maps in there with airport data, and not only that, but customs and immigration information and what you could see and do and where you can eat. It truly is like the Caribbean in your back pocket. Yeah, you know, I remember they would, the publisher, the previous publisher would send a batch, you know, to the to the office for review and things like that, editorial copies. And I kept every one because it's kind of like a dream book. You know, you, it's, you'd sit there, I'd see it on the shelf, I'd pull it off. And it's just so cool because they've got, you know, photos through the whole thing. And so you can see the airports and then you just dream about like, oh, what it would be like to fly here and bounce over to here and then over to there. And so it's kind of a cross between 
like an airport directory and a, and a lonely pilot travel book. You know, you get a little bit of culture information and things like that. So the books, of course, are static. You know, they're, they're published, they're printed, they're gone. There are digital versions as well, and those will be updated. So now you can see this, you know, everything that's going on, like you said, the, the PCR tests and the current COVID information entry for those countries, that stuff is going to be continually updated in the digital versions. And so that might be a good resource for folks who are really thinking about going on there and need something kind of tactical. I think that's a great idea. And it's, like we said, it's like having the entire Caribbean into your back pocket. Or if you have it digitally, you know, you have a, you know, a variety of ways. You can look at it in the cockpit on the iPad or anything like that. So it's a good deal. If you want to buy the printed version, uh, it's $39.95. And don't forget the digital format with regular digital updates. And that, this is a brand new item just published as we're, as we're recording the podcast. Yep. Good. So now if you're going to fly down there, you got to do it safely, of course. And AOPA for decades now has published the NAL report. Now, these are yearly reports of GA accidents. The people at the Air Safety Institute, they get into these in detail, each accident, classify it, and put out this really comprehensive report that really, it's a report card, it tells us how are we doing as a community. And the latest reports are out and it's good news. Well, Ian, you mentioned one thing I want to get right into. You said the latest reports are out with an S. Yeah. And so right now, it's not just one report, but it's it's two reports now. And listen, don't forget, these are this. We're going over statistics that we have that are the latest statistics, and they, they're not current to 2020 because these are reported sort of in arrears. Yeah, from the NTSB, right? Right. Yeah, and, and they're going to be updated on a regular basis, too, digitally, you know, like we just talked about the travel guide. But the overall accident rate in 2017 went down, and the fatal accident rate also decreased from 2017 to 2018. That went down. So those are, are good news. Both of those were from 2017 to 2018, and there's some specific numbers in there, but Overall, the accident rates went down. The fatal accident rate also went down. Yep, yep. I think it's all good news. I mean, there are there were more total accidents, but of course, we're flying more. You know, aviation activity was up in 2018, and so the rate, like you said, is down. So that's an important distinction. Make sure you pay attention when you read those. But the other thing that's new about these null reports is that previously, it would be published. They would, you know, the statistician would go through it, make the report, it'd go to a designer, they'd put it out, right? Print some, put them in PDF. It's more, I'll call it active now. You can go on, it's a more sort of interactive format, more database driven. So it's it's a new kind of idea for the null report. And I think if you're interested in really sort of quick top line, you know, snapshot of what's going on with GA safety, it's a great resource. The 29th and 30th Joseph T. Nall reports are both out. So that is great news. And the folks at the ASI, the Air Safety Institute, really work long and hard to sift through the data. And we're learning a lot about what makes pilots safer and what we can do or what we should not be doing. So this is great information. And like you said, it will be updated way more frequently. Yep. So airplanes are in there. Helicopters are in there. One thing that's not in there is flying cars. But maybe that's going to change because we got a surprise, and that is a new flying car that's actually flown. Ian, you brought this up to me today. I thought you were talking about another car, but the Klein Air Car took its first test flight. It was, as we record this about a week ago, 
And this is really interesting. Now, it happened in Slovakia, and the, the flying car reached an altitude of 1,500 feet AGL. And we're, we're tipping our hat to the AVWeb folks because they reported on this as well. Mm-hmm. And this is not what we call used to call vaporware. This is like it really flew, you know? Yeah, yeah. It actually happened. Yeah. So like, you know, <laughs> the, the Mort flying car was a long time ago, but this is a, a real one in the 21st century. And that is pretty exciting. So tell us a little bit more about uh, the Klein Air Car, Ian. And I think you did a little bit more of a deeper dive in it than I did. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is that it looks cool, which is important. You know, I mean, if you're going to be driving around in an airplane or flying in a car, you know, you got to look good. It reminds me of a Lotus a little bit. It's got a front end kind of like a Lotus. So they've designed it with, you know, kind of modern styling, which is nice. They're talking about probably 150 knot type of speed and about 600 miles. We'll see how that goes. But how much how much fuel are you burning with that? And am I using low lead or, or what, I am I, what am I burning? It's a great question. I mean, so coming from Europe, they're, you know, sensitive to avgas, right? So right now, the, this test vehicle is being powered by a BMW engine. They're talking about in the future, switching it to another one, a 300 horsepower. They call it an Adept Airmotive V6 engine. So, you know, kind of a car airplane hybrid sort of situation. They're saying, you know, on that 150 knots, they're going to go five gallons an hour. I'll believe that when I see it. One thing that is a major limiting factor, though, is payload. They're talking about less than 500 pounds so you know that's like a full fuel single person kind of kind of machine oh that's a good point Ian. you're right about that because like i mean i weigh about 200 pounds and uh, if i'm putting in i'm putting enough fuel to go someplace with it yeah that's a limiting factor but you know here's what i see that might be a cool thing what if you flew from an airport to an airport and then converted the car the air car to a car car then i drove like i don't know from frederick to like washington dc yeah you know yeah then all of a sudden i've got 30 miles to to drive down and park my car over and, and visit some museums and things like that so it does kind of open it, you know, it takes what, what Mark Baker always says, you know, give me one mile of pavement and I'll give you the world. It takes that to the next dimension. Yeah. And I will say they it's got a cool wing folding design. It's not like, you know, the Terrafugia does kind of a, it's like the wings have been smushed from the outside and so they fold vertically. This one, they, they fold vertically, but then back. And so it, it looks a little bit, you know, they, it has the wings kind of like a glider, maybe an electric mechanism right now. So we'll see if that stays. It looks very cool, you know. I've always wondered, though, with these things, think about the airports you've been to. I wonder about access because it's like some of these you land and, you know, like let's say it's at night, you land on the runway, you've got to get to the road. And so, you know, that presents challenges sometimes because <laughs> it's like, how do you, you know, if the yeah. gate's locked or right. something like that, it's like, you know, you got to call somebody. And so, yeah, I, I can just imagine, you know, you're like, man, I got this flying car. It's so cool. But I'm stuck at the airport, and I got to call a cab anyway, so I don't know. And and some of the gates are just big enough for a person to go yeah, in and out exactly. of with a special punch code, not a car. Um, I like the I like the design of the car too. Uh, going back and looking at the picture real quick, it's got that that air coupe twin rudder look, you know. Yeah, the twin boom. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I said that's much more 21st century. The swept tail and it looks like a, a little bit of a T tail combination dual rudder on the back yeah well i don't know what you call what kind of design you call that but that's kind of neat it accentuates the design the boxy kind of elongated design of the vehicle itself yeah twin boom so i mean this was like we said it was a surprise you mentioned vaporware it's like we you know we will hear for a decade from somebody who never does anything but this one it's like it popped up and they did it so congrats to them it's very cool so hey let's move on to robert 
Speaking of somebody who did something, Robert had been planning this trip for a couple of years and uh, he pulled it off safely. Flew around the world in his, in his twin commander, turbine airplane, twin turbine, and really fascinating flight. And like you mentioned, he had a purpose as he went. Now, before we introduce Robert, I just want our podcast listeners to know we did, we multitask on this one interview. We were trying to get it into our pilot lounge, which we have on video. So if there's a reference to that, just ignore it because we're trying to do two things at once. But Robert was great. He talked to us really the day after he landed, he was uh, fresh out of uh, out of the trip, and this is a months-long trip to the North and the South Pole, not in that order, and he really discovered some cool things about himself, his airplane, and the people of the world. Welcome, Robert DeLaurentis, world traveler, polar circumnavigator, and San Diegoan. How do you, is it San Diegoan or San Diegoan? <laughs> I guess it depends who you're trying to impress. Uh, both of them work for me. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate you being on. And for folks who haven't been keeping up with your blog, you started on a, a basically a mission of world peace and world understanding in an aircraft called Citizen of the World uh, over nine months ago. Tell us a little bit about what just happened. You're, you're broadcasting to us from San Diego. And uh, just give us a wrap up real quick what happened today and we'll backtrack. Well, a couple of days ago, I returned to Allen Airways here at Gillespie Field after completing a nine-month polar circumnavigation to 22 countries and six continents. And of course, the trip was intended to be four or five months, but with COVID and other delays, it took much longer. But, you know, we're so dedicated to the mission that there was no way I was going to walk away from that. And it wasn't just the flying, of course. Uh, we were celebrating AOPA's 80th anniversary by flying over Antarctica during their anniversary year, which was a success. We used biofuels over the North and South Poles for the first time, which was a success. And I believe it was the longest time in the air for a twin turboprop in the C1F category in the history of man or woman. But maybe most importantly, we carried experiments for NASA, a wafer-scale spaceship, and also for Scripps Institute of Oceanography. We tested for plastics in the atmosphere and when I was quarantined in Spain, I left at the height of the pandemic in an attempt to see if those plastics in the air contained COVID virus. That's really interesting. And Robert, I was going to ask you about the experiments because you wrote about it a couple of times in the blogs. And also for full disclosure, I helped edit some of the blogs. So I know a little bit of the backstory on, on some of this, but we haven't talked about them all that much. And I'm very curious about your message of science, technology, engineering, and math, and how these experiments um, factored into that. So before we talk about your airplane, which is really cool, and about you know this experience during the COVID pandemic, give us the inside look at, at what you were trying to find out with the plastics, and, and, and do you have any tentative discoveries yet? Well, the plastic experiment was testing for plastics in the atmosphere, and it's been proven that there are plastics on the ground all over the earth, even at the South and North 
pole. And then also every body of water on the planet, you know, reasonable size has been tested and they found these microfibers. So in flying over the poles around the planet, if we can prove that there's plastics in the air, then we've completed the cycle and we can prove that the plastics on the ground and the water more, more than likely came from plastics in the air. So that's the completion of this cycle. And very, very important, you know, because we inhale plastics, we ingest plastics, and at any given time we have plastics in our body. So really important piece of information to know. So that could lead to, you know, medical issues or, or diseases. We just don't know, maybe. Right, to be determined. And, okay. you know, what effect will it have on the world if we find out that the coronavirus is also floating in the air, right, on the plastics from our clothes? That's a really good point. Well, speaking of the coronavirus, let's let's go let's back up a little bit here. You started out, gosh, it was nine months ago, so that would be I want to say you started right around November, and you've been preparing for about a year or more in your Turbo Commander 900. Tell us a little bit about the airplane. Yeah, the airplane itself is a. You could probably write a book on it. We've done over 50 modifications to it, and it basically, David, I did everything I could think of to make that plane go higher, faster, and further. And if I had another 10 years and another, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars, there's nothing really more that I could do to that plane to make it go further. So, you know, the, the big things, the biggest things, of course, was that Honeywell stepped up and rebuilt the TPE 331-10T engines. And there were a few components that they had upgraded. So the 750 horsepower engines on the test stand produced 1150 in one, 1147 in the other, giving us almost 2300 horsepower. The other thing is MT propeller built custom five bladed nickel tip scimitar composite props, which, you know, I went to them after my first circumnavigation along the equator and said, hey, I need something that starts faster, lighter, climbs faster, and cruises faster, and that's what they came up with. And my plane, the Citizen of the World, was the first turbine commander to ever get those five-bladed props. And since that time, they've been sold out. And the vibration has been eliminated, and the sound has been cut in half. So, you know, bringing the plane into the 21st century. And uh, in cruise, I've seen 311 knots true. So very, very fast. So basically, so you've had you've, some of these uh, some of the modifications have have helped you not only with this, with speed and performance, but in quietness and being a good neighbor as well. Right, and then you know let's not forget we added six extra fuel tanks to this plane. It has a very large cabin, so five in the cabin, one in the luggage compartment. We put in a new environmental system designed by a very smart guy named Peter Schiff. Saved us a couple hundred pounds. Uh, used bleed air to turn a turbo, which then compressed air and put it in the cabin so it was non-contaminated. And because we're using less bleed air, we got more speed uh, and altitude out of it. And then RVSM upgrade, uh, ceramic coating on the outside of the plane, and every imaginable toy on that panel that I could get in there. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the panel toys in a bit because they were they were a little squirrely. I know they caused you some great consternation 
over both poles. Let's let our viewers and listeners know that. So this polar circumnavigation was basically the South Pole to the North Pole. It was something that uh, you had done a little bit differently than other folks, and you broke it up into different chunklets. You spent some time on the ground with folks, and I know you had presentations. You also did what you do best, which is you go out and meet the people a little bit and learn a little bit about them, and they learn a little bit about you in general aviation. So tell us a little bit about some of the people that you met on this trip. That's a great question. So we're doing a 10-part docu-series called Peace Pilot to the Ends of the Earth and Beyond. The beyond is uh, sort of the metaphysical component of the trip. And along the way, we tried to interview as many different types of people as we could find. So we interviewed people like dog sledders from Ushuaia, Argentina, Zulu rangers from Africa, a guy named Eric Lindbergh you might have heard of, the grandson of Charles Lindbergh, artists, you know, athletes, all kinds of different people. And we were asking them about how they found peace in their world and what it meant to be a citizen of the world, which is the name of the plane. So we learned, you know, many, many things from these people. And true to aviation, you know, aviation teaches you about life. It's not just about, you know, getting in a plane and flying somewhere. You have all kinds of uh, experiences that you take into the world. So we're, you know, in a way we're ambassadors for, for aviation. Absolutely. And that was one of the messages that I thought that you got across pretty well. The aircraft is called the citizen of the world. Your mission was to unite the world. Little did you know that you were at times in one of the safest places to be in the air and at times in some of the most unsafe places to be. For instance, you were hunkered down in Spain. This is shortly after Spain was leading the world in coronavirus cases. That was before it was a big problem in the U.S. Folks have to think back to March to really understand this a little bit better. But what were your thoughts when you were on this mission and all of a sudden the world is sort of collapsing around you? Well, let me add to the, the point too, David, that I was living in a monastery in Montserrat that was a thousand years old when I got kicked out of there when the quarantine hit because they didn't want non-monks living with the monks during the quarantine. Oh, um, no. You know what? Like everybody else on the planet, I was a little bit scared, you know, and kind of homeless for a little bit. I was concerned because in Spain, they were stacking the bodies up in ice arenas because they ran out of space in the morgues. So, you know, they had an older population and the country was uh, running very, very scared at the time. So, you know, I was scared. I was in the middle of it. I eventually landed on my feet, which I think I put me in a place to do some of my best reflection and some of the best writing I did on the trip, but I was uh, in a place called Sitches on a mountaintop and a place called the Zen Villa. And I had a beautiful view, I had quiet. It was kind of like flying almost, you know, when you have those beautiful scenic moments along the coast, but it went on for a month and a half. Now you also were, or feet on the street, you mentioned the, the monastery. Tell us about some of the gorgeous scenery you saw on the ground. We heard a little bit about, about Spain, where else? Uh, Falkland Islands uh, jump out at me, right? It's um, two remote islands, British colonies, vastly underpopulated, lots of sheep, but just beautiful green fields, you know, cliffs, ocean everywhere, cool, you know, air, just a beautiful, beautiful place. And, you know, interspersed are these very small British towns, probably with as many pubs as there are houses. 
And just, you know, it was kind of a taste of uh, America in a way because they spoke English, you know, and I've been traveling around Central and South America. So that was beautiful. Ushuaia, Argentina, where I departed from to head to the South Pole, that is a stunningly beautiful place. You know, the really rugged mountains that are snow-capped and, you know, high winds, so there's white caps on the water. Place where penguins, but actually the Falklands and Ushuaia, they have penguins. So, you know, you get a little bit of that nature piece that you don't necessarily get in the United States. I'm a big fan of Egypt, you know, with the pyramids. And then uh, Ethiopia, the Tigray region of Ethiopia, uh, I meant or met a, a monk or priest who was living in a cage for, or cave, I'm sorry, for 50 years up on top of a mountain. You know, just beautiful, beautiful area. That, that's dedication. I, I'm envious. Now, look, you mentioned Ushuaia. I'm sure I'll pronounce it wrong. That's a jumping off point in Argentina before you departed. I mean, you departed from Ushuaia to go to the South Pole. That was an 18-hour trip. It was 4,300 nautical miles, and lots of stuff went wrong there, Robert. And I know one thing you were curious about um, ahead of time was the temperature at which the fuel could potentially gel in the aircraft. And another thing was like uh, you had plotted out how much fuel you would need under under specific conditions to get over the South Pole and then come back to Argentina. And also going on in the back of your mind was, a, a, it was, a, I guess, an Air Force mission that had failed at some time, basically shortly before that. So all this is going through your mind. Take us through that and talk about the zone of confusion and, and the time in between and things like that. Okay, so, you know, we're building up to my departure. I get to Ushuaia about uh, seven days before I'm planning on leaving. I wanted to get a feel for the weather. You know, I wanted to start filling the fuel tanks up so that I could make it that distance and see that everything held. And a Chilean C-130 with 36 souls on board crashes into the Drake Passage, which is between... Ushuaia and the northern tip of Antarctica, they can't find anybody. Eventually they find some of the wreckage. And I'm sitting there thinking about what are my chances if a C-130 that's got, you know, the fleet of them has millions of hours on it. It's a reliable plane. They have two experienced pilots compared to one that has no experience. They had better weather. And then they were only going two hours from Punta Arenas to King George Island. My flight was nine times longer, 18 hours. So I was trying to assess my chances of surviving that when they couldn't. And that really scared me. About the same time, uh, the Chileans came back and said, you cannot go to Antarctica. And I said, well, there's the Antarctic Treaty that says all the member nations have right to fly. They said, but we control the airways. And because you're conducting science and you don't have the approval of our scientific community, you can't go. So we go, well, we'll get permission. You know, I'm thinking, I hope. They said, well, that takes six months. So I got my scientist who's running that particle experiment to write them a very nice letter. And like any good aviator, you have a backup plan and maybe another one. So at that point, we started reaching out to Ushuaia and also to the Falklands as possible departure points. And we knew at that point, too, that because uh, Punta Arenas had all the search and rescue missions looking for that C-130, that probably wasn't going to be a good option for us anyway. Eventually, the Chileans came back and said, hey, your experiment is non-invasive. You know, you're not taking anything away. 
um, and you're not leaving anything more than any other plane would. So we decided at that point to leave from Ushuaia. And, you know, one of the big challenges was the plane was tested at 80% ferry fuel. And uh, there's a very smart guy named Robert Morgan from Scaled Composites. He was one of their senior engineers. And he did a study to tell me if I could make it the distance, if I was carrying, you know, the full amount of, of fuel. And he said that I could. So I was feeling pretty good about that. We had tests flown out of Mojave, you know, uh, at that number. But the problem was when I departed from Ushuaia, the wind direction changed. And my original plan was to take off and fly along the Beagle Channel, which is about 50 miles, and fly in ground effect if necessary. But when the wind changed, I had to take off in the opposite direction and there was a mountain right in front of me. So that forced me to do a 180 degree turn in the channel with fuel. So that was a pretty scary moment, you know, getting into the plane, starting it up going, wow, you know, how well is this plane going to handle? And to my utter delight, it climbed, instead of being stuck in ground effect, it climbed at 1,800 feet per minute. And I made it up to like 29,000 feet in about 56 minutes. So at that point, I thought, wow, this plane has got some power, you know, and it's got the lift and the capability. I think I have a good chance. But, you know, keep in mind when you fly to the South Pole, the plane's heavy. So you actually burn more than half your fuel on the way there, right? Because okay. the angle of attack is very steep. You're not flying very fast. So I literally went past half fuel on my way down. And that's a scary moment, right? Yeah, because how so do you, you know can, if you have enough to come back? Well, your plane's lighter and faster at that point, right? Maybe You're it's hoping. a moment of faith. Yeah. And then, you know, what's the weather, too? And there's the big joke, you can land anywhere once, but, you know, can you take off? So very risky, you know, flight. I, I took some chances, quite honestly. You were really close to that, that magic number where the fuel might gel. It was like, what, minus 60 degrees or something like that, centigrade. Right. So Jet A1, which has a lower uh, gel point than Jet A, which I believe is minus 43, was the magic number. The problem was the outside air temperature was minus 60 and the engines are rated to minus 53. So I was getting cold on the engines. I had talked to somebody who had flown them at minus 60 and said no problem. And then we had a very clever system for heating the fuel. Because five of the tanks were inside the cabin, I used the fuel that was in the unheated part of the plane in the luggage compartment before it got really cold outside. And then once I got into the air, I took the fuel from inside the cabin, which was, you know, being warmed to sort of air temperature, maybe 65, not very quickly, right? Because air doesn't really heat fuel very fast. But we had found a, uh, a way through the skin of the ship to the uh, wing route, and then to the inboard tank. And of course, friction over the wing, you know, heats the fuel. There's a heat exchanger as well. And because we were taking fuel that was probably, you know, a few degrees above freezing, it would literally have to drop probably over 47 degrees to actually gel. And that wasn't going to happen in that short distance that it had to go. So we felt good about that. The big thing was navigation because the right. flight management systems started to fall offline probably about 75 nautical miles from the South Pole. So, you know, one would fail and then the other, and then, you know, it was a combination of the, 
the two sometimes. And I had set my directional gyro to a heading to steer through the North Pole. And of course, a directional gyro is not subject to the GPS or the magnetic fields of the Earth. So I was following that as I crossed the South Pole. And then I had a line of position on the sun, which I knew would reverse when I turned the plane around. So I made it over, spun my directional gyro, and then came back around. And you know the one instrument that in the plane that worked no matter what? I know because I helped edit some of the blogs, <laughs> but tell everyone else. <laughs> You're going to get an A on your test, David. Uh, the uh, iPad work. And we're trying to figure out why. We think it's because it picked up some Russian satellites as well. Certainly, it didn't have the same antenna that was on top of the plane. So we're not 100% sure why. But with that, I ended up doing a 360 around the South Pole, one for the planet, one for the people. And then I headed back. But keep in mind, I was talking to the South Pole while I was doing all this. I had permission to overfly. And I was talking to a guy named Corey who worked at the South Pole. And they had gathered a bunch of people in the radio room there because they, you know, he was telling them, hey, somebody's flying over now. It's an experiment, world peace, plastics in the atmosphere, you know, and NASA experiment. So they were all in there and uh, I was having a conversation with them. It was wonderful. You know, amazing people to be in such a remote region, you know, dedicating themselves to, to science. And, and it was funny because when I asked, he said, are you going to overfly the South Pole? And I said, yeah, I'd like to request permission. And he came back and he said, negative Ghost Rider. And I was like, I think that's from Top Gun, but I know he hasn't seen the new one yet. And I haven't. And we're both at the South Pole, so there's no way we're going to see it anytime soon, right? Um, yeah. So we both started laughing, but it was a nice comic relief, you know, that far out in the world. And uh, one of the things I did not have to deal with that I thought was going to be a problem was snow blindness. Because in Antarctica at the South Pole, the snow and ice is 8,000 feet above the ground. And you have just little bits of mountaintops sticking out. And it's very difficult to tell the difference between the clouds and the snow. But right. I had some specially designed sunglasses, you know, flips with different levels of filtration from Shaden that worked really well. So that issue was not an issue. Pilot fatigue. I talked to a guy named Bill Harrelson who had done a similar flight in a Lance Air. And uh, I asked him how he stayed awake because his flight was even longer. And he said, uh, I was afraid the entire time. And that kept him awake. And that certainly kept me awake too. So the fear, fear factor is, helped keep you awake. It kept your adrenaline, adrenaline up a little bit. And we do know Bill. He's uh, from the Virginia area, uh, another world rounder. Now, we should also let folks know that you are also a previous Earth rounder. Now, not polar, but you went around the circumference of the Earth as well. What year was that, 2015? 2015. And, you know, you mentioned Bill. There's another guy named Michelle Gordillo who actually landed at the pole on skis in an RV, I think, seven but those guys were so helpful to me, David. You know, they shared all their information with me. And certainly Michelle was, you know, checking weather for me and he helped with permits. Like those guys are awesome. Let me just say that. Good deal. Now, Robert, now there there might be some skeptics that might say, you know, how do you know that you crossed over the South Pole because of the blackouts, the navigational blackouts you experienced. So, you know, you went over that a little bit, but how certain are you of that? And what would you tell your skeptics? My skeptics, I would say that I had 
these things called nanos that the FAI, the Federation Aeronautique, requires for proving records. I had two of them, and they followed me the entire way on the trip. Also, over the South Pole, I sent out a message on my Garmin InReach Explorer that just got bought out that showed that I was at the South Pole. And then I have video from my iPad showing me crossing the South Pole. So I would say from those four different sources, since I had two of the nanos, that they will confirm that. Plus, I was in radio range of the South Pole, too. So. Now, I was following you on that inReach moving map as well, and the, the map, it's kind of funny, Robert, the, the map kind of goes to a certain point, and then it's off the screen. I mean, it's like right. it, it disappears and then doubles back. So that's a, that's a little off-putting for someone following you. I would imagine it would be you know, quite the experience while you're actually flying in the airplane and, and things drop away. Well, that text message that I sent um, gives the Latin longitude. So it's very, very close to that point. And there's a time delay because it's got to find a satellite and, and transmit it. And God. I'm hoping that the nanos also show that. And I have you know, video of a countdown on the GPS or the flight management systems before they failed. I think we're convinced. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it was kind of exciting for people following, you know, because there were times when um, the... Uh, FlightAware and uh, FlightRadar24 didn't cover it either. So, yeah. I want to go um, to a side, little side point real quick because one of the things that you had done on Citizen of the World was basically the ADSB setup. You had top and bottom antennas, if I remember correctly. Explain to us a little bit more about that and what that, what that was helping you with. Okay, that's called the diversity transponder. And most transponders have an antenna on the bottom right? So all the ground stations can pick them up. And more than likely, if there was a ground station, uh, they would have found my position, but it's a much more precise position if you also have one on top. And Matt Desch, the uh, president of Iridium, had suggested that I do that. And then some people at Arion had suggested that. And then FlightAware also had suggested that. So the problem at the time is my transponder wasn't a diversity transponder. I had an Avidyne system, so they put me in touch with L3, which gave me an NGT 9000. Have you ever seen those? They're quite a piece of technology. Agreed. Swiping screens, you know, traffic, terrain, weather, METARs. I mean, you got happy fingers when you're when you have one of those in your cockpit. But now you have to so be yeah. an, an airplane, an airplane pilot, uh, an engineer, and a navigator all built all rolled into one to make all this stuff work right. Yeah, yeah, it's quite a skill set. And you know, the other thing is Matt Desch is getting me the uh, tracks from his Iridium satellites over the poles. So that'll be a sixth way to confirm it too. Gotcha. Now you crossed over the South Pole. If I recall, it was December. The 16th, or correct me if I'm off. I believe now, that's that, correct. Now, that was just one day away from the anniversary of Powered Flight. Robert, what gives? <laughs> well, <laughs> the trip took uh, actually two days because it, it passed through midnight. So maybe I got it covered. Okay. All right. Well, coming back to, let's come back to the upper hemisphere. Let's talk about the North Pole. That's fresh in your mind. You had been hunkered down in Spain for a number of months while the world was suffering through coronavirus. You also departed from Spain and you ended up in Scandinavia for a while, right? And it was real questionable yet again 
on how to get out of, uh, of Northern Europe, Scandinavia to, to jump onto that last leg. And I know you and I traded uh, messages and phone calls back in May, you know, wondering when, you know, when and if you could go to leave Spain. Tell us a little bit about how, how you jumped out from Spain to Northern Points and, and then how you scrambled to get going yet again to make that final push for the North Pole. Yeah, let me say I was uh, not suffering in Scandinavia because I was in Sweden having a beautiful time, you know, beautiful country, wonderful people. But, you know, we were waiting technically for the warmest day of the year at the North Pole, which uh, created ground fog, right? So whereas it might be warmer and clear above the clouds, if you ever had to go down, you have major problems. So it was a compromise that we made. But originally I was trying to get out of Svalbard, Norway. And it's, uh, you know, it's the furthest point north that you can go, right above Sweden. And we applied two different times. I was told, you know, no problem, wink, wink, it's going to work. And the civilian airport authority said yes, but the government said no twice because they didn't have any medical facilities there. So the thought was that if I brought anything in, then they would have to evacuate the entire island. They didn't want oh. to potentially have to do that. So we started looking at other places, leaving from Iceland. And eventually, I believe I could have stopped in Svalbard, but it would have only been for a fuel stop, right? So then all of a sudden, my long day would get even longer, and I would add a landing into the risk, right? And I thought, I've got these fuel tanks. I've had two of them burst on me and dump over 150 gallons inside the cabin of the plane. So I had removed one of those that had burst. The second one we took out in Sweden and had it uh, rewelded, and we tested that one and it held, you know, fuel. So I didn't really want to rely on the ferry tanks anymore, but as soon as Norway said no, I knew my trip went from 2,000 nautical miles to closer to 3,000. So now I'm in that range where I've got to use ferry tanks again to get home. And some of them were metal and some of them were rubber bladders. And I knew the rubber bladders were fine. So the one inside the passenger compartment, I was going to fill up all the way. The problem was the one in the luggage compartment was unpressurized. And I had to use two fuel pumps to pull the fuel out. But if there were any air bubbles in there, then it wouldn't take the fuel. And I had that happen on a couple flights where it wouldn't take fuel. So I didn't want to use that last fuel tank. So the four middle ones inside the cabin filled up to varying amounts, not to stress them out. And I came up with enough fuel, you know, to make it that distance. So I left from Karuna, Sweden, which is in the north of Sweden, overflew Svalbard at about two hours. And at that point, lost normal comms. So I shifted to um, HF, which didn't work. And we kind of knew that might happen because the antenna for the HF radio was very short and it really only worked once during the trip. So then I shifted to my satellite phone, which had worked over the South Pole and I couldn't get Oceanic on there. And, you know, I had a number of successes. Was it Oceanic that we finally decided to go with? I forget in that blog. I think it was It Oceanic. totally is. You, you researched okay. it, and we appreciate that. And so folks who haven't flown over the North Pole or through the Atlantic, that's the air traffic control facility that you would, would route through. Right. So I could call them, and I could hear something. I just couldn't make out 
you know, what their voices were saying. So I made, I don't know, three or four attempts and I kept getting the same thing. And finally at this, that point, I just realized I was alone, you know, and I was gonna end up doing this without comms. So I proceeded on my way. The midpoint was right around the true North Pole, the magnetic North Pole, and the North Pole of inaccessibility. So about 150 nautical miles from the first North Pole, the true one, I started to lose my flight management systems. And that was about 75 nautical miles early than what happened at the South Pole. And quite honestly, David, I thought the North Pole was going to be easy in comparison. You know, shorter distance, well-traveled route. I had experience. The plane was working really well at that point. And then things just sort of, you know, went downhill from there. And I actually had a really good departure from uh, Sweden. Everything was going according to plan, you know, no fuel leaks, no oil leaks, no nitrogen leaks, no oxygen leaks. I just, I thought, man, this thing's going to smoke it over the North Pole. And then the flight management systems failed. And then what really threw me off was the two Atahars failed as well. So the attitude heading and reference. And when that failed, my autopilot failed too. And it put me in a like steep right turn. So unlike on the 737 Maxes where you can't overpower the autopilot, on my plane you can, it just takes a lot of energy. So I yeah. hit the um, disconnect on the yoke, it's a red button. I hear the you know, beep, 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 but it's still trying to turn. Uh, so then I push the off button on the autopilot, it's still turning. And then I reach down and pull the circuit breaker and I know which one it is because I've marked it with a yellow cap and I pull that and the autopilot releases. But now I'm hand flying at 30,000 feet because I was at a wrong way altitude. How many more miles did you have to go? Uh, I was five hours and about 1500 nautical from uh, the furthest or the closest landmass. So okay. now I'm hand flying at RVSM altitude, which is not good. And I'm at a wrong way altitude and I don't have any heading and reference, right? And I'll tell you, I'm in, uh, I'm on top of the clouds, so I can see the, you know, top of the clouds, but I don't know which way is Alaska. You know, I have the directional gyro that I set, but I know that that's going to start to degrade. So I was being optimistic and I thought, well, it'll come back. The systems will come back after about 150 nautical miles because that's, you know, when they started to fail before the North Poles. Well, that didn't happen. And I ended up flying like that for five hours. And what I did do is I dropped to a right way altitude rather than staying at 30,000 feet. And I was shutting down systems, bringing them back online because usually that'll, you know, fix the flight management system or the GPS. Well, it didn't work. And eventually I found that if I set the autopilot in heading mode, even though I didn't have a display, it would hold what I believed to be the correct heading that I was on. Towards Alaska. Towards Alaska. And, you know, so I had my ESI 500, the L3, that had a different heading. My magnetic compass was totally worthless. The flight management systems weren't, you know, showing me much of anything. At one point, they had the plane going backwards along the magenta line, and then one of them would change, they'd both change. And I was just like, wow, this is like maybe some cosmic punishment. You know, maybe I, I don't know, I did something wrong. And then I had a uh, display that usually had my GPS track for my radar as well. And that was doing crazy things. 
So once again, do you know what piece of equipment seemed to work? I'm guessing it's the $1,000 iPad that kept you going. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So I was just, you know, I, you know, I had sweat going down my back. You can imagine, you know, you're out five miles from land or five hours from land going, which one of these will I trust? And my absolute last case scenario was going to be, I would satellite text um, a guy named Eddie Gold from General Aviation Support Egypt and say, am I headed towards Alaska? Because he had a track he could follow. And it didn't show, when I eventually looked back at it, it didn't show the course changes between true magnetic and the North Pole of inaccessibility. So it was very inaccurate, but I believed, you know, ultimately that could get me to Alaska, at least over the ground. So it was an act of faith at that point. The one blessing or a couple blessings I had was that I had a tailwind of almost a hundred knots most of the way. So I had a bunch of extra fuel and I knew I could stay in the air for a while, assuming I wasn't you know, doing circles. And I just, um, I continued on. And I remember looking out at those Honeywell TPE 331-10Ts and the big MT props going, you know what? Those things don't care. They just keep running, you know, <laughs> running and they're beautiful and they make a nice sound. And I thought they're going to get me home, you know? So Absolutely. I, <laughs> I continued on my way and like a really naughty school child, everything came back online about 50 nautical miles from land. It was kind of like the teacher was out of the room and they were just all having a big party. And then once the teacher came back in, you know, 50 miles off the coast of Alaska, everything worked perfectly. And I was like, wow, you know, was I imagining all that? And of course I wasn't because I have video to prove it. And you'll see that in the docuseries. But, um, you know, when I thought it was all over, Dead Horse, which is also known as Prudhoe Bay, uh, was supposed to have clear weather. So after, you know, 11 or a 10 and a half hours, well, actually at that point it was eight and a half hours. After that long of a stressful flight, you just want to get down on the ground. But one, the weather uh, was 300 feet, you know, the cloud mm. layer. And I wasn't really in the mood to do a you know, tough instrument approach in. That's serious. Um, That's some serious weather after uh, a dozen hours in the air and you're, you're hungry, you're tired, you know, uh, other, other, you know, time for a restroom break, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, I wasn't hungry because I had a ton of food with me. <laughs> I was eating like I was gonna a ask what, I was going to ask what you were eating to keep your energy up. Yeah. I had power bars and I had canned uh, corn and sandwiches and, you know, all kinds of drinks. I was fine on the food. Okay. Um, the final thing was when I was planning the flight and filing my EAPIS into the United States, you know, I was uh, trying to list airport of entry and I was looking for Dead Horse and Prudhoe Bay. And eventually I realized that wasn't an airport of entry. So legally I wasn't really supposed to land there. So I called up customs out of Fairbanks, which was the closest airport. I said, Hey, I want to go into Prudhoe Bay. And the director there said, well, if you do, I'm going to arrest you. I can impound your plane and I can fine you because we don't have an officer there. And I said, well, you know, it's hard to predict weather and that's a long distance I'll be traveling. And he goes, you should have planned better. That's and quite a welcome like, from, uh, from yeah. folks in Alaska after being around the world. <laughs> yeah, welcome back, right? Yeah. So I sort of hung up and I was frustrated because I didn't want to try and take on more fuel, you know, because I was 
not real comfortable with my ferry tanks at that point. And um, I calculated another hour and a half to two hours in the air to get to Fairbanks. So I thought, well, that's my plan. And that's when the flight became 10 and a half hours. So it went from, I don't know, being seven-ish, you know, if I left from Norway. And then when I was leaving from Sweden, it was like eight and a half. And then when it got extended to Fairbanks, now I'm at, you know, 10 and a half hours. So it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And what seemed like it was going to be a relatively easy flight got very, very difficult. Yeah. And, well, uh, now you said you picked up a little bit of cushion because you had a little bit of a tailwind. But but listen, you know, you don't know how far off the course you strayed or how much fuel you might have used trying to get back on because there was still that time of confusion. And I know yes. you had a non-Zen moment also. <laughs> Well, that was happening. It got edited out. Yeah. <laughs> then now you went ahead and extended, or did you take the chance and land and risk the customs violation? Well, in defense of uh, customs and border patrol, I got a call back two hours later when I filed the APIS, and he said, "You know what? I'm going to grant you permission to land in Dead Horse. Uh, when you get on the ground, call our office right away. But I want you in Fairbanks the next morning." So, you know, he cut me some slack on that. So those guys ended up being pretty cool. But, you know, that last hour and a half, I hate to use the word easy ever and flying, but the weather cleared, the plane was smooth, light, and fast and high. And um, I landed in Fairbanks just feeling good, you know. And then I lost my passport in Fairbanks, but otherwise, <laughs> oh no, it was good. I still can't find it. But at, le at least your mood had lightened and, and you, you had a, a weight off your shoulders and you had accomplished this spectacular journey. Yet again, the citizen of the world is the name of the aircraft. And part of your mission was to unite folks around the world. And right. so when, whenever you're being dealt some of these cards, I mean, that's got to be going through your mind. It's like, hey, I'm, I'm meant to do this to help people and spread the good word and spread the word of aviators and and talk, you know, talk to people through a common language. And how do you combat some of these frustrations, you know, when, when things are starting to go wrong? You know, I like to say that I always resort to my fundamentals, right? Aviate, navigate, communicate. And then everything else is just extra if you can do it, right? So, you know, in these moments of extreme stress, that's what I like to do. And that's true, I think, with the world too. You know, we're in a pretty tough situation right now. I think if we resort to our fundamentals, which is that people are all humans, you know, connected in that way, then we realize there are more similarities than differences. You know, we value family and love and compassion, safety, security, health. You know, that will bring us to the point where we need to go. But in the plane, you know, you just never give up. That's what somebody once told me. I was in our Sarsawak, Iceland, Greenland. And I was eating in this cafeteria and there was some pilot who operated up there and he knew I was crossing the North Atlantic. He goes, let me give you one piece of advice. He goes, never give up. And that's, you know, you've heard people say, fly, fly through the crash, right? All the way or, through. Bob Hoover or, or whoever said that. <laughs> yeah. So great advice, you know, and when I was over the South Pole and things were starting to get a little shaky, I felt like I had been broken. You know, I had been broken, especially getting back over the Drake Passage when I was low on fuel, trying to get below the cloud layer when I hadn't been able to maintain comms. 
And, you know, I think that flight really broke me open for what was ahead of me, all the lessons I needed to learn. You know, I needed to get stronger and get my equipment in even better shape, which we did for that North Pole leg. So, you know, I think aviation is the ultimate teacher. It really is. You know, that perspective, that connection, that quiet. Those are the times when we learn our big lessons, you know. Absolutely. And, and speaking of lessons, you've met people along the way. You have big plans. You're also writing a children's book, correct? It's published now. It's now published. Okay. Yeah. And so, in fact, you've written four books, if I'm not mistaken. I'm working on the fourth one now, which is Peace Pilot to the Ends of the Earth and Beyond. Okay. Fourth one in progress. And so, do you think that the flight united the people that you wanted to unite? I think, you know, metaphorically, of course, yes, I've gotten many, many messages that actually helped inspire me to continue because it would have been really easy to say, you know, COVID, I'm going home to the United States. I'll worry about this later. So I think the persistence was certainly helpful, you know, connecting the two places on the planet where peace has always existed and, you know, connecting these places where there was polarity, right? Because the world is polarized. I think helps bring people together as well. You know, I, I like to believe that the flight was the beginning of our mission of one planet, one people, one plane, and that's uniting everybody in oneness. And certainly when you, you know, take off in one direction and arrive at your destination coming from the other direction, you've, you know, you've gone around the planet. You can see it's one planet. And the more people I talk to, you know, the more I realize we're so similar. And when I landed in Fairbanks, there was a very nice lady who came out. She owned the pizza parlor and she invited me and the camera crew up, you know, for lunch. And there was a mechanic that stopped by and took um, some pictures. And I think aviation captures and unites human beings because we all dream about it. And, you know, the book was uh, the little plane that could was designed to capture the imagination of kids three to five long before any aviation company sees them as a potential pilot. And it's because we're a not-for-profit, you know, we're not making any money. I haven't made anything, I can tell you that. You know, we, we unite as, as humans and things that we're passionate about. And if anything, aviation brings people together. Well, that, that's a good note to start wrapping things up. Now, let folks know when you crossed the North Pole. That was, what, seven months almost to the day after the South Pole. If you were at the South Pole on December 16th-ish, then you were crossing the North Pole right around July 15th, something like that? Yeah, but don't forget November 16th is when I left San Diego. Oh, so, absolutely. No, absolutely. It took yeah. you a while to get in position. So, But you crossed the North Pole in mid-July, correct? Uh, yes, mid-July was the optimum. And, and you were just talking about uniting the world. Now, you had a little bit of, of a united celebration in the air. You had a, an, an interesting escort taking you the last leg of the journey. And I saw the Citizen of the World airplane amidst a couple of really cool other aircraft. Tell us a little bit about the final leg of the journey and how interesting was that to be escorted basically back to home base? Yeah, that was uh, that was just a wonder, quite honestly. You know, the Tiger Squadron that's based out of Torrance does over 100 events a year. But because of the COVID, you know, they needed some practice time. And uh, one of the guys who's um, in the squadron, a guy named Guido, he runs Lyft Aviation. 
great sponsor of mine. I called him up and I said, hey, what do you think about an aerial photo shoot? And we had our camera crew, a guy named Jeremy Lazell and Kristen Gates. Between the two of them, they've got Nat Geo, Discovery, Animal Planet, Bravo, one other one I'm maybe leaving out, Experience. So they're excellent photographers. And we put one of them in the camera plane, which was a um, twin bonanza. And then also one in the last plane in the squadron. So they have smoke makers on the planes. So there was a scene you saw it right in the footage where, you know, they're lined up on me and they're trailing smoke and another one where I'm overtaking them. And then there was a final scene. I don't know if you saw it, but the, the camera plane flew over the squadron while it was trailing smoke and I'm in the center. So it's going to make some fantastic footage. We've already leaked a couple pictures just to sort of tease everybody a little bit, but we're holding the best and that's going to be fantastic in that 10 part docu-series. But that's also a really cool feeling to have your friend, basically acquaintances, aviation acquaintances, take the time out of their day to escort you in, you know, over the bay and everything. It was a a very pretty day as well. So uh, I saw some of the airplanes. I was thinking, wow, this is kind of neat to be in the middle of all this. Yeah, you know, Guido, I consider him a brother. He's um, an amazing guy. And I've met the squadron before, before the trip. So, you know, familiar faces, familiar voices, and what a sort of epic conclusion, you know, to be escorted by fellow aviators and, you know, create something that I just, when I saw it, it sent chills up my spine because the footage was so good. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful to come back. You know, that being said, David, I've got so many things going through my head now. You know, I'm trying to process everything that happened on the trip and, One of the ways I stayed alive was just, I just focused on that one leg every day that I was, you know, flying one leg, one leg, one leg. And the past didn't matter. And except for the experience, maybe, um, and the future hadn't happened yet. So now you get back to a beautiful place like San Diego that, uh, Alan Airways here and my mind is just spinning, you know, so I'm, I'm thinking about that experience and that risk and, you know, what this person said. But, you know, the common things were, again, the people that showed me kindness, the people that supported the trip. AOPA was, you know, one of my big supporters. And then we have 90 plus sponsors. And then what I call angels, which were individuals that just went above and beyond, you know, what I could ever expect from somebody. So I like to say it wasn't a mission of one, it was a mission of many. And I think all of aviation can be proud, you know, of of this mission, the science, the first. I mean, that plane is a wonder. You know, it's a wonder with a lot of potential left. So we'll see where it ends up. But, well, that's um, uh, that's almost a, a great way to to end our great conversation. Listen, one step at a time is really good advice for anyone. One leg at a time. And uh, that I think a lot of us could benefit from that, Robert. I appreciate you bringing that out. I also appreciate you bringing out a lot of your Zen moments through your writing. And when the world was going through such a tough time, you actually um, had a lot of us grounded with some thoughts that, you know, made us look outside of ourselves a little bit and see how we could do things to help other people and how to keep ourselves safe. I mean, at one point, I even was asking you, like, how do you shop during the middle of the coronavirus? You know, you had good tips on that for us. So one leg at a time. That's great advice. Looking forward, do we have any 
big, big plans for the future. I know you're going to chill out for a little while in the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains near nearby, but I mean, you've conquered the earth. Now what's next, the moon? I mean, I don't know. Well, I think what's next is, you know, sharing the experience. And one thing I haven't told a lot of people is Redbird Flight Simulators has asked me to write five flight simulations from the trip. And they'll be playable on all 3,500 Redbird Flight Simulators all over the world. So you will be able to get into a simulator and experience what I did over the South Pole, over the North Pole, you know, dodging that cyclone out of Madagascar and, um, you know, some of the other scary things that I had to deal with. And certainly, you know, the things I've shared, I can reflect back and say, hey, maybe I should have, you know, charted out all the comms for those oceanic frequencies. I didn't. I was expecting to be handed off. So I've made mistakes and I'd like, you know, other people to learn from those mistakes. But we're joking around that it, when you get out of one of those flight simulators, you're going to need a psychiatrist standing there next to you to handle some of these intense feelings you're having, you know, in the air. But, you know, you get to experience the full gamut of emotions when you fly, right? There's joy and fear and maybe sadness, you know, I'm going to land now. And, you know, it's, it's a very complete experience in the air. And we want that to be transferred to those flight simulations. I'm hoping that they get the full motion simulators involved too. So we'll see. Um, yes, the Redbird folks are good partners of ours, and I've flown with the Redbird FMX, and we typically have our AOPA Flight Training Experience Awards in conjunction with the Redbird migration every year. This year it's virtual though, but yes, right. they're um, they're good friends of all of us in aviation. So I'll look forward to maybe trying my hand at some of the of the five yeah. uh, you know potential demonstrations through the Redbird. Robert De Laurentiis, thank you so much for joining us. I know we took a lot of your time today. You had a busy day. You had three different news conferences to let people know about your trip around the world. And also, we love your background. The Ryan airplane behind you is excellent at the museum. Yeah. So, so well, hats off to them. You challenged me to have a good background. I think I delivered on this. You know, um, one final thought, David. A, a journey is not epic unless it's shared. And I think making you know, this something that everybody can experience and understand and learn from is my way to make the, the journey epic in its own way. So thanks for that opportunity. And thank you, Robert. And safe travels as always. So, you know, David, I've always been intrigued by the people who fly around the world. I don't think I would do the poles, though. I, You know, the South Pole, the North Pole, I think that's just a little too hardcore for me. So my, my I tip my hat to him. I, I think that's pretty phenomenal. It is. It was a, a phenomenal journey, as you said. And um, as we mentioned at the top of the segment, he learned a lot about himself, his aircraft, and the people of the world. And he did this during, as he told us, he did this during the uh, peak of the coronavirus. And mm -hmm. I actually relied on Robert to let us know here in the States what he was going through while he was um, in Europe, while it was unfolding around him. And we published some tips on that, which he talked about in the interview but yes, he did this, and he also did it for outreach, for, for science, technology, engineering, and math, and really, for like he likes to say, for the betterment of mankind. So way to go, Robert, and thanks for being part of Hangar Talk. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen.
And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk. And we're also available wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Spotify, via Apple, or Google. So give us a listen. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, yeah. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.